The following audio is from a sermon series on the book of Ecclesiastes, taking a long look at life under the sun. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com. Father, we, we come to you this morning to hear from you. We, more than just some sort of pep talk, more than empty words, we want to hear the living and active word of God come in and, and change our lives, that you would penetrate our hard hearts, that you would, you would divide the bone from the marrow through your word this morning. Would you stir our affections for Jesus? And using this text, Father, would you open our eyes to what's before us here in the church and the glorious mystery of the gospel? And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. We have been working our way through the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, and what we're framing this up as, we're taking a long look, we're sitting with this preacher, this, this old sage, uh, who's the voice of Solomon, who's the wisest man who's ever roamed the earth aside from Jesus, and we're taking a long look at life under the sun. Now, Ecclesiastes is, is considered wisdom literature. There's a great deal of wisdom in here, but it's wisdom that's different than the book of Proverbs or even Song of Solomon, which Solomon himself is responsible for writing all of these three books. In Ecclesiastes, Solomon takes a different approach to his wisdom, conveying wisdom to us. He's, he's doing this so far. It's been observational wisdom. He's surveying life under the sun, and he's identifying every aspect of life. And as we've made our way through the book so far, what we've seen of his conclusion is vanity of vanities. All is vanity. He says it's vapor. Life is a vapor. It's something that's elusive. You see it, and you grasp it, and it's gone. You can't really hold on to it. And in the same vocabulary, he's showing us that there's essentially this plague of meaninglessness that has been cultivated due to the fall of sin that happened in Genesis chapter 3. And this plague is running rampant throughout this world. And when we look out, we want to know just how far this infection, this disease spreads Right? Like a, a cancer patient would ask, is, is this localized or has it spread throughout the body? There's a hope that someplace, somewhere under the sun is yet to be infected by this disease. And as we sit in the pews, we think, right, shouldn't church, shouldn't this place be a place that's protected from the, the frustrations and the vanity that happens in life? Now, if there's any place that's to be reminiscent of Eden, it is the church, is it not? A, a place where there's meaningful relationships, where we're engaged in, in meaningful and, and enjoying work, where there's deep joy and satisfaction. It ought to be right here, right? Now, at its best, the church ought to be a lot like Eden, now, for some of us, we've had this experience, that, that church is, is a sweet place for us. We've had a, a, a profound experience of God's hospitality, his, his welcome. We've experienced grace here that, that's unlike places we've ever experienced grace before. There's a, a deep connection with God and with others. We've, we find purpose and delight. As I was reading this week, I was reading through, uh, Zach S. S. Wine wrote a book on Ecclesiastes called 
recovering Eden, and I thought he just captured this so perfectly. I want to share it with you. He says, church has often, it is, excuse me, it has often been in church, among church folks, that God has recovered my sense of him. Cups of soup and Tupperware tubs of casserole have accompanied the hugs, the prayers, and the hope-spoken tears of those who have both celebrated and cried with me to God in such houses. Sunday morning meetings in these houses have provided me with gifts of truth, repentance, solid ground, forgiveness, grace, and relational wisdom. Bible words spoken in Jesus with human teeth and tongue have come to me at times as if God himself stood before me, spoke them to me, and by them lifted my head. In short, the house and the people of God have been God's means to keep me sane in him amid the madness of my own heart and the strivings after wind that hollow us out. And I read that and I just thought that was such a neat way to capture the beauty, the experience that we can have in the church. But for every experience that is similar to Zach's experience in the church, there are the counter experiences where it seems as if church compounds the madness of life. Now it's interesting that church under the sun still casts dark shadows. There are dark corners in churches that we might get mugged in. Now, figuratively, you don't need to walk around church wondering if someone's going to jump out at you. But stepping foot in church is, a, is risky business. Some of us have come and we've asked for help among the church and we've only found that an additional burden has been added to us. We've come, we've opened up our, our, and unbandaged our wounds to show them, hoping for healing and comfort, only for people to stick their dirty fingers in the wound and create more infection. Some of us have been wounded at the hands of unqualified leaders or the, the politics of a spiritually bankrupt church, which is more like a social club, has caused hurt and pain. Even this week, I saw there's, there was an open letter that a, a, a prominent Christian female leader wrote to the church about the hurt that she's experienced even in her position. The church has added to a lot of the madness. The church has compounded the pain and the frustration of life under the sun. Now just think about it for a moment. There are, are literally thousands of people within a mile radius of here who are disinterested or disengaged with the church for various reasons. Some, some people have grown up in the church and, and they've had an upbringing that, that said it's all about the rules, it's oppressive, it's this or it's that, or they've had their own experiences of hurt and they say, you know what, church isn't for me. It's too judgy. Everybody's hypocritical, it's fake, it's kind of confusing, it's, it's a waste of my time. Now, church is meant to be a time where we come and our hearts are softened and we receive from God, but a lot of times when a church is unhealthy, people's hearts become hardened towards God because of that church. Thomas Merton was a, a Catholic monk who had a friend who wrote to him at one point, and, he's, and this friend said, you know what, Tom, 
I don't allow my kids to attend church because I don't want them to become atheists. My church can have this maddening effect. Now, some of us, we're still hanging on. We haven't been so quick to discard it and pass it on to somebody else. We're hanging on. Like S-Wine, we've had the good and the bad. We don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. So even in the confusing and, and sometimes frustrating pains of church, we've also found refuge here from the intense heat of life under the sun. The reality is that as long as there's imperfect people within the church, and listen, imperfect people are the only kinds of people that Jesus calls to himself. As long as there's imperfect people in the church, the church will never be perfect. It will always be frustrated. So the preacher has a word for us today. In the reality of this situation, right, both the joy and the frustration. He has a word for us today that when we bring it near to our chest, when we hold on to it tight, when we see it the way that he sees it, we gain the ability to be transformed. That we become a church that is more gracious and loving, that's more inviting and more missional, that's vibrant and joyful and hospitable. That Sacred City Church becomes the kind of church that the thousands of spiritually sleepy people in our neighborhood and beyond would want to be a part of. And so the preacher is going to instruct us today on how to engage, how to participate in the church in a way that contributes to its flourishing. Right? What it's like to do church under the sun. And so he's going to do a little bit of housekeeping. So if you want to open your Bibles, we're going to be in Ecclesiastes 5. That's on page 320 if you open up those pew Bibles. And we will start with verse 1 here. The preacher says, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Now, as if landmines are scattered across the unfortunately colored carpet, the preacher says, watch your foot. This is both an instruction and a warning. A warning in the sense that, as he goes on in verse 1, there are fools in the church. Now, these fools, they are probably well-intentioned, but, but they're still accumulating evil. Maybe they're oblivious, right? Nobody really insists on being a fool, but there is this evil that's compounded by the fools among the church. Well-intentioned people who can be counterproductive. It'd be, it's the equivalent of using uh, your high beams in fog. Yeah, you turn them on thinking, oh, this will help me see better, but it only makes it harder to see. Now, really, it's the grace of God that we all aren't like that. And I think if we really examine ourselves, we tend to be more like that than when we want to think of ourselves. And in the church, people have been hurt by people like this. The fools who speaks too quickly or, or is judgy or hypocritical. Now, some of us have been hurt and frustrated by people like that. It, it's probably, if, if it's gotten really bad, it's put you to the brink of, I think I might walk away from this. But just know this. Bec just because there's a presence of clueless ignorance doesn't mean that God is absent. 
See, when we're learning to ride a bike as a kid, you got on that thing, and you pedaled and pedaled and pedaled, and at some point you fell, right? You got scrapes, you got bruises, you probably got the handlebar like in the gut, and it knocks the wind out of you, right? My mom, right? It's like, I can't breathe. And if you're 99% of kids, right, you, you dust it off, you get a Band-Aid on, catch your breath, and you get right back on the bike. But this time, you're more careful, right? Because the thrill of being on the bike is greater than the potential risk of injury. So the preacher says, guard your steps when, not if, when you go to the house of God. Now, he's assuming that you're getting back on the bike. He's saying, don't give up on the church. Don't let those wounds from fools keep you from the grace and the joy that you might find here. Because where your feet are going determines the direction of your life. And so the preacher's asking, are you moving toward God? Now, if you have seen how God has moved toward you in the gospel, right, we, we, that last song summarized the gospel story for us. If you have seen how God has moved toward you in the gospel, we respond by moving back toward God. We stoke our affections for him. We engage in community. We participate with the worship and the liturgy. We read and we study and we invest ourselves in prayer. We're trying to get ourselves closer and closer, more intimate with God. And when you do these things, when you give yourself to these means of grace, it will inevitably put you and put your feet within the church. Because Christ, to walk with Christ, is to be with the church. Christ and his church are united. They are are inseparable. You cannot have one and not the other. There was an author uh, her name was Anne Rice, who for many years when she was uh, in her adolescence, she rejected God. She was an atheist, and, and God showed up in a major way, and she, she converted uh, to the faith, and she put her trust in Jesus. And for about a decade, she, just, she was very vocal about what Jesus had done in changing her life. And, and in this time, she was wrestling with the church. There, there was, she sensed this frustration of church under the sun. And after about 10 years she wrote an an article that said, I'm quitting the church. I'm going to keep Jesus, but I'm quitting the church. Now, if we understand Jesus, if we understand the gospel, we cannot do that. Right? You cannot separate Jesus from his church. They're not the same, but Jesus, Jesus, by the gospel, brings us into the church. Cyprian of Carthage said that we cannot have God as a father without having the church as our mother. The both have to come together. The gospel brings you into the church and sets your feet in the house of God. Now this warning to guard yourself steps isn't just to watch out for the fools that might be in your midst. But it's also a warning to keep a watch on yourself. Have you ever got, you know, you're walking down the stairs, you get to the, the bottom of the stairs and you're convinced that there's one more step and you go to take that step and you kind of like buckle your knee? You know what I'm talking about, anybody? Right, you kind of jolt yourself, trip yourself forward a little bit. 
If we don't pay attention, we can do the spiritual equivalent in the church. We can misstep, and by misstepping, we could miss it altogether. And one way that we often do that is by busying ourselves with what the preacher calls the sacrifice of fools in verse 1. Now here's the idea of this sacrifice of fools. It's the person who is checking the right boxes. They're doing the right things. They're, they're going to church. They're giving. They're serving. They're doing this. They're doing that. But they're doing these things disengaged from the why. It's a person who goes to church because that's what we do. The sacrifice of fools is to go through the motions without contemplation, without the tethering, right? Why we do it. It reminds me of the story in Luke 10 uh, where Jesus is sitting down with Mary and Martha. Um, he shows up. He's, he's ready to sit down and enjoy them. And, and Mary sits down at Jesus' feet. And, and, and Jesus is just teaching her and she's soaking it up. And Martha is here running around the house, busying herself with these chores. And she gets upset with Mary. She's like, Jesus, aren't you going to say something? I'm here doing all this stuff, and she's just sitting here. Aren't you going to tell her to, to start serving with me? And Jesus looks at her and says, Mary has chosen the good portion. It was good for Mary to just sit down and learn from Jesus. Now, this story always makes me a little bit nervous because I'm afraid that all the ch children's ministry volunteers are going to tell me, you know what, I think I need to just sit at the feet of Jesus for a little while. <laughs> but this story isn't about how we should stop serving. That's not what he's talking about. This story is telling us how we should engage with Jesus so our serving can take on a deeper meaning. To serve or to, to sacrifice and to be distracted is counterproductive. It becomes life-robbing rather than life-giving. Right? To sit through the gathering, even to keep an eye on your watch, knowing that you have a tea time or a lunch date, it, it keeps you distracted. It keeps you from engaging and participating and being present in the moment. And when we're distracted, it's, it's really hard to hear anything at all. I swear, probably like two or three times a week, I'm sitting on the couch, flipping through my phone, email, Instagram, whatever, and I can hear my wife talking to me. Right? I know words are coming out of her mouth, and it's probably going on for a couple minutes, you know? And I finally, she stops, and I'm like, in the, in the absence of words in the air, I realize something's going on, and I turn, and did you say something? Right? That's what it can be like in church where, where we're just distracted from what God is trying to do, what he's trying to engage us with. And when we're distracted, we can't hear from God. And that is a major reason why we come to church on Sunday mornings. Right? This is what verse 1 says. In verse uh, here, he says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools for they do not know they are doing evil. See, to draw near to listen is better to engage with the busy work. Being quiet is really hard, is it not? 
to sit in silence? Have you ever been in a, in a car with somebody? They, they just like to talk, right? And, and it gets to a certain point, you know, at the hour marker, two-hour marker, you just run out of stuff to say to each other. And there's this really uncomfortable silence. Right? That's, that's what we can feel a lot of times in church, just to be quiet, to, to, to settle down and to open up our ears can be difficult. Some of us might even be convinced that God is perhaps mute. Like he, he doesn't really, it's not that he doesn't have anything to say, it's just that he's not speaking to us. God is speaking to us. It might be a still, small voice, but he's communicating to his people. Now, some of us are boneheads, okay? Some of us refuse to listen to the still, small voice. We refuse to to sit and listen, and we say things like, you know what? It really takes a lot for God to get my attention. He's really got to knock me off my feet in order for me to get the picture here. But why? why? Why do that? If there's so much for us to gain, if we just sit and be quiet and open up our ears. See, the reality is life is way too complicated and too frustrating for us to manage life under the sun on our own. God is trying to help us. So the preacher says to us, sit still and listen. You might be thinking, you know, this preacher sounds like a pretty uh, self-motivating statement to make, right? Listen to the preacher. But he's not saying that so you turn your attention to him. He, he's trying to get you to, to get your eyes and your ears on God. In fact, when Paul is talking to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, he's telling them, when you heard me preach to you, when you heard the words of God proclaimed over you, you weren't hearing from man. You were hearing from God himself. So we turn our ears, we sit still, we listen, and so every Sunday we can come expecting to hear from God. We can come knowing that God is communicating to his people in various ways. And I think our Sunday mornings are just tremendously packed with the ability to hear from God. And the songs, packed with the promises of scripture, packed with the good news, packed with things that our hearts can can rejoice in and sing over throughout the week. The liturgy, packed with scripture, packed with God communicating what he has been communicating to his people throughout time and space. Perhaps the most important part of the morning, it's not the sermon, it's, it's hearing from the Lord. And then even, even more so coming to the Lord's table where God is communicating something to us tangibly, that we actually get to put our fingers on something to take it in. See, we can come to church each Sunday expecting that God has something for us to hear. And you know what? I think for 90% of us, about 90% of the time, what we need to hear is be still and know that I am God. It's so easy to forget that. It's so easy to forget that. In fact, that's where the preacher goes next in verse 2. He reminds us that God is God and we are not. He says, God is in heaven and we are here on earth. 
seems kind of like a no-brainer, huh? But we forget this. The, the chatter of our lips becomes rash and our heart becomes hasty. We forget that we aren't God, that we don't have the best view on life. We start grumbling about the way things are. And it reminds me of when God led Israel out of slavery in Egypt. They start grumbling about the minutia. They're, they're upset about what's right before them. They can't see the big picture. But God has that picture. He can see it from heaven. We don't have that perspective without his help. Now, that's not to say that there's no reason to be frustrated with life. The preacher has been venting, maybe. That might be not the right, right word. But he, he's been communicating the frustrations of life for the last four chapters. He's saying the vanity of work, the vexation of wisdom, it's frustrating, right? And so it makes sense that we ask these questions like, why God? Why does it have to be like this? We have this tendency to buck against whatever God has brought to us. Now, sometimes it comes out of our mouths, right? But a lot of times it's, it's under the surface. It's the grumbling, the discontentment in the heart. And this is where this dreaming business comes to in verse 3. He says, for... For a dream comes with much busyness. And this dream stuff, he's talking about these daydreams. This, this daydream that, that makes us think, like, I wonder what life would be like if this. I wonder if what life would be like if this relationship would have panned out or if I chose a different career. I wonder what it would have been like if that, that person didn't get cancer or pass away. I wonder what it would have been like if this pregnancy would have come to turn. To fantasize a life that is not is the intellectual parallel of chasing wind. It creates busyness and hustle. We get caught in the land of if onlys and should have beens. And with that become, comes a, a throbbing discontentment for the here and the now. And a lot of times we come with our accusations against God. Now, this is different than having aspirations and goals and, and a vision for your life. This, this is an attempt to sort of go back and rewrite history, to, to rewrite the things that have already happened, to, to, to grieve in these things in an unhealthy way. But here in the house of God, this is a place where we quiet these grumblings. It takes humility to accept what isn't. It takes humility to trust and to surrender to the will of God. It takes patience and, and even stamina. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't grieve what isn't. There's real loss in the things that, that haven't come to be. But we do this from a place of trust, not irritation. There was a, a, a tweet that I came across uh, maybe a year and a half ago from John Piper that, that really just rattled me. He says, occasionally weep deeply over the life you hoped, or excuse me, occasionally weep deeply over the life you hoped would be. Grieve the losses then wash your face, 
trust God and embrace the life you have. See, it takes deep trust. It takes a trust in knowing that God has the perspective that you don't have, that he's in the heavens, that he sees what you don't see. And when we learn to trust God and, and know that he's working all things together for the good of those who love him, it's in that our souls and our hearts are gently hushed. Like a, a nursing mother who hushes her baby, God pulls us to his chest and encourages us to be still and be quiet. He allows the inner turmoil and the hasty hearts to subside and our words become fewer and more thoughtful. See, it's in humility that we learn to do as James exhorts in his epistle, to be slow to speak and quick to listen. Now, for some reason in the church, there's been an assumption that if you use more words, God's going to hear you better. Right? Maybe you've been at, at lunch with somebody, and, and they've got this, like, feels like a year-long prayer. You're just like, okay. Yep, yep. You're sneaking French fries, peeking out of your eye. See, this is, this is, what, this is what happens when people are, are filled with hypocrisy. They, they fill with this idea that God only hears us if we use tons of words. But Jesus spoke against these people who always pray like this. He says in Matthew 6, he says, when you pray, don't go babbling like the hypocrites do. Don't fill the air with empty words. In fact, he says in the next verse, he says, before you even pray, God already knows what you need. So the next instruction the preacher gives us is about when we pray, when we make these vows, or when we commit to God. He said, when we go to God to ask for something and we promise something back, right? This is the vows that he's talking about. Uh, it's this idea, that it, God, if you give me this, if you help me pass this test, I promise I'll do this. If you help my business grow, I promise I'll do this. And we see this sort of thing. It might seem sort of uh, paganistic or something, but, but we see this sort of thing going on throughout Scripture. In 1 Samuel Hannah is barren. She can't have children. And she says to God, God, if you would give me a child, I promise I'll give him back to you. And God gives her a child. And then she goes and she gives this child and devotes him to the work of the temple. Now, the preacher warns us here about not keeping our word in these vows. In verses 4 through 6, he says, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? He's saying here, don't sin by backing out on your vows. See, the, the reality is in this life, the things that we do with our hands will be frustrated. Whatever we build will eventually come down. If that's the reality for our life, why add to the frustration and the vexation by making God upset with our lack of commitment? Now, there are vows that we make to God, but there are vows that we make to God that also involve other people that are equally important, that God is equally uh, passionate about. For example, marriage. 
Right? We see a bride and a groom stand at the altar together and they say to each other, for better or for worse, I'm committed to you. And God is honored in marriages that stick together through thick and thin, through the, the good and the bad. But right now in our culture, the chances of divorce are the same for a Christian couple as a non-Christian couple. And this is heartbreaking. As Christians, we understand forgiveness and steadfast love of God, which should translate into to patience and forbearance with our spouses. But that's seldom the case. Or church membership. We, Krista came forward and, and all the church members renewed our vows together today as a church. And this isn't something that we take lightly. This is, there's, there's gravity here to these words. Because we're making a vow to each other and to God that we're committed here these are our people, that we're committed to the mission of God moving forward, that we're committed to being part of something. Yet a lot of times, the vows of church membership don't carry weight to them. We see people, and I'm not, I'm not saying this necessarily about our church, but, but across the city, you see people jumping from churches to churches. They're going to where the grass seems greener. There's no stick with itness to it. The vows are empty. I'm not saying there's no, never a reason to leave a church. Certainly there are. But there's danger in, in making vows that are empty. Now all this can be summed up by Jesus when he's, he's preaching the Sermon on the Mount. He says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. He's saying the same thing here. Don't make empty vows. Don't say you're going to do something. Don't pledge yourself to something if you're not going to follow through on it. Now, we have to realize here, he, he's talking about hypocrisy, uh, of saying one thing and doing another. If there's one thing that the church ought to be concerned about, it, it should be hypocrisy. There's nothing that turns away people faster than a, a room full of hypocrites. In fact, Jesus was probably the, the thing Jesus was, one of the things Jesus was most vocal about was the hypocrisy among religious people. And in the house of God, we ought to be thoughtful about our words that our yes be yes and our no be no. We mean what we say and we do what we say. Now the preacher, as we turn to verse seven, he, he's kind of summarizing what he's already said. And he's going to leave us with one final thought, which really changes uh, the way that we see church under the sun. He says in verse 7, For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. He's telling us what we already know. He says this, But God is the one you must fear. In churches where people are discontent with reality, where they're lost in daydreams and heaping up empty words, there is vanity. People come looking for God, but they miss him through the vapor of vanity. When your version of God or church doesn't line up with reality, the church becomes pointless. The quest for God is difficult. It's empty. And people who are disengaged with church they, or find it boring or whatever, it's oftentimes because they aren't seeing God correctly. But the preacher says when we see God correctly, when we see God for who he is, we ought to fear him. Now, this isn't a terror, this isn't a sense of being scared. 
This is a fear of reverence, of, of being in awe of and, and amazed by who God is. Because when we look at life under the sun, we see that all of the things under the sun are fading away. They're wasting away. But it's God and his work that endures forever. There's something magnificent about God and who he is and what he's done. And even though life is frustrating and complex, God is working through it. Now, the only way that we can see God correctly is by looking to Jesus. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. It's in Jesus where we see all the promises of God finding their yes. We see the wisdom of God trumping the folly of man. Where the rule of sin and death is overthrown. We see the Lamb of God who is sent to sacrifice himself to take away the sins of the world. See, and when we see Jesus for who he is and what he's done, we are moved from apathy of God to a worship and reverence for him. It's where we are caused to lift our voices in singing and our arms and, and living in a life that's changed by God's grace. See, church is a place where God is breaking the monotony of life under the sun. Church is a place where God is breaking in, where we're finding new mercies and sufficient grace, where there's rest and contentment in who God is and what he has done in Christ. And then we latch on to that. We hold on to God. We open up our ears and soften our hearts toward him. And in that, we are transformed by him. Now, as a church, if we really honed in on these characteristics, if we were slow to speak and quick to listen, just think of the culture of humility that would create. Think of the understanding that we would have with one another. If we're giving ourselves to listening before speaking, it becomes really difficult to become the fool who, who blurts something hurtful out becomes a, a safe place, a place of encouragement and, 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 and care for one another. A place where we become self-aware of who we are, our tendencies, and become more aware of God's grace and compassion and patience with us. A place of honesty and freedom, a place where we're purged of hypocrisy that our yes would be yes and our no be no. Just think of the legacy of steadfastness that we would have as a church if, if we do what we say, if we stick with each other through the long haul, that we keep our, our membership commitment to one another. See, in a world where every, if it goes wrong, we walk away. Right? We don't like it, we step out. The church is offering a different narrative that, that because God is here, we are here too. Now, all of this, the way that we can live in this sort of community, the way that we can give ourselves to church, understand the only way that we can do this is by keeping the gospel before us, to catch a glimpse of the mercies and the grace and the glory of God, to hear from him, to open up our ears. This isn't empty religion. This isn't spiritual busy work. Church life is the discipline of listening to God and responding appropriately. 
remembering that God has sent Jesus into this world to break the monotony and to transform us and the world. God has given us a meal to remember this by. As we come to the Lord's table today, we receive essentially a promise that this meal that we take now is a foretaste of the meal that's to come. That the church under the sun will not always be this mix of frustration and joy. That one day every tear will be wiped away. Every frustration pushed out. That church life with God will be joyful and everlasting. And that's what the meal points us to today. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that even in a church that is frustrating and hard, the messiness of life can become overwhelming that you are still here, that you're at work, that you're doing something among your people. Father, I pray that in this church that you would create an alternate narrative, that you would help us uh, to, to create a culture of, of honesty, of humility and listening and hearing from you reverent awe and worship. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.